never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit adoptuskids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a reminder that life does not start and stop at your convenience. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are drinking Horizon Lines by the good folks at Foam Brewers. This is a triple IPA, very crushable for a triple, and that is because Horizon Lines is brewed with peach and tangerine. ABV 11%, so drink this at home in your garage, and I think you will agree, garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And here's some cheers to our friends. First up, a big shout out to Andy in St. Michael, Minnesota. And a big we like to jib to Patrick in Lake Mary, Florida. And last but certainly not least, we have my friend Robin over at Water's Edge here in Delaware, Ohio. Everybody we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and hooked us up this week with some beers for the fridge. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. We got some new shirts in stock, so you want to check those out at truecrimegarage.com. And, Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. We're digging deeper into a private investigator's 92-page investigation into the death of Michelle O'Connell. O'Connell died four years ago on September 2nd, 2010, in what was ruled a, hom- a suicide, but some of her family members have insisted it was a homicide. Channel 4 Scott Johnson has been looking into this, and he's joining us now live. Scott? Mary, tomorrow here in St. John's County, the family, along with their attorney, holding a vigil four years since Michelle O'Connell died. Well, tomorrow they are also having a news conference with an announcement. They want the governor to open this case again. They say they have new witnesses. And I talked to a guy tonight on the eve of this announcement who's been investigating this case himself. He thinks some things were left out. Clue Wright questions the validity of the criminal investigation into the death of Michelle O'Connell and questions whether it was a suicide or perhaps investigators got it wrong and someone killed the St. John's County woman. You know, it's not about my review and analysis into this case. It's about the evidence. And it's about, you know, the evidence getting submitted and getting looked at. 
One thing Wright points to is an interview FDLE conducted with O'Connell's boyfriend at the time, St. John's County Deputy Jeremy Banks. Here's an excerpt from Wright's report that says he implies Banks staged the scene where O'Connell's body was found. Quote, Agent Rogers asked Jay Banks if he agrees that the location of the gun could not have fallen in the position found, and forensic experts have stated the gun was staged or placed. Agent Rogers goes on to say, do you agree? Jay Banks replied, uh-huh. Agent Rogers asked Jay Banks, do you see the logic in that response? Jay Banks' response was yes, and do you agree with that, though? Jay Banks' response again, yes, by shaking his head. Wright says this strongly suggests the way her body was found had been tampered with. Well, I think it's a mismanagement of, of the case. I think it's an injustice because when, when you go into an investigated case, no matter what type of investigation you do, it's a systematic process. And you have to rule out any, any criminal intent to that case. One other thing Wright points out that's interesting concerns the black glove we first told you about at 10. It was found on the hood of Banks' car. Well, Wright says Banks' patrol car also happened to have a box of black medical gloves in the back. And he says detectives never tested to see if they were the same type of gloves. Now he's sending this information to anyone who will listen. I sent it to the, uh, the, uh, the state's attorney for the 5th Circuit, the 7th Circuit, the 8th Circuit. I sent it to the governor. I sent it to everybody that Sheriff Shore sent it to that was on his list. I sent it to uh, Channel 4, the FBI. So tomorrow the family will be gathering to talk about this. Also, they have a petition going trying to encourage the governor to reopen this case and look at the state's findings. We're live in St. John's County. Scott Johnson, Channel 4, the local station. Interesting stuff. You heard it there. That investigator that you heard speaking is a man by the name of Clue Wright. It does not get much better in the way of interesting name for investigator than Clue Wright. When he was named as a baby, they knew exactly what he would be doing as a grown-up. Unless he named himself. That's true. That's true. Then it's just it just looks good on a business card. But Clue Wright my friends, was not the only person investigating the incredibly suspicious death of Michelle O'Connell. Someone in Michelle City, St. Augustine, Florida, a citizen, was looking into the Michelle O'Connell case. And depending on who you talk to, well, that person, Eli Washtock, was making some headway in the O'Connell case, but that would all come to an end, sadly, because sometime between taking his son out to dinner and taking his son to school the next morning, someone murdered Eli Washtock. Depending on who you talk to, some say Eli Washtock's murder has everything to do with the suspicious death of Michelle O'Connell. So let's figure out who Eli Washtock was. Eli Washtock was a man in his late 30s who was living in St. Augustine, Florida. He's originally from Wisconsin. And at some point, he and a former girlfriend, or maybe they were married at one time, lived down in St. Augustine, Florida together. These two had two children, a son and a daughter. Now, at some point, this family splits up. Eli decides to go home to Wisconsin because the mother of his children took the children back to Wisconsin. He wanted to be near his children. 
Then after about a year or so, he decided, look, Florida is much more for me than Wisconsin is. I'm moving back down to Florida. When we catch up with Eli Washtock, where our case starts in 2019, in January, we have Eli Washtock, who is living in St. Augustine, Florida, and by this point, his son is 15 years old and living with him down in Florida. This because, you know, at some point in a young man's age or teenage boy's age, there sometimes becomes this point where you need to go live with dad. And you need to be raised by dad. And that was the situation here. We want to look into Eli's case, not as a part three to our Michelle O'Connell coverage that we did last week, but rather as a standalone to look into Eli Washtock's murder. Now, you know, one thing that I hate, Captain, is an incomplete timeline. Unfortunately, that is what we will be dealing with here today in this homicide investigation. On January 31st, 2019, a 15-year-old boy came home at 7.30 a.m. to find his father, Eli Washtock, then aged 38, dead of a gunshot wound to the head. This took place at Washtock's residence, which was the Latera Condominiums. He was killed in his condo, which was located at World Golf Village at 945 Registry Boulevard, St. John's County, Florida. In an interesting turn of events here, Captain, the 15-year-old son who found his father dead was not residing in the condo with Eli Washtock at that time. This is because it's reported that Eli Washtock had some concerns for his safety, for his son's safety. And in fact, we had one neighbor that told the news that his son was staying in a condominium on the first floor level. Eli Washtock's condo was on the third floor of his building and that Eli had made these arrangements to keep his son safe or he was at least concerned for their safety and made these arrangements. Yeah, depending on who you ask, there's different reasons. Some say that he was renting this place and they were going to move into this into that condo from the upstairs condo. Other people said that while well, he was trying to protect his son, other people said, well, maybe they were just not getting along at the time. So this was just a temporary solution. As I think the apartment downstairs was only rented out from that Monday to that Friday for one week. There's a lot of things to talk about here just with this one aspect of the case. So first off, what we're going to find when we looked into Eli Washtock's murder is that there is very little in the way of detail available in this case. The details just certainly just are not there. And that is because the Putnam County Sheriff's Office has chose not to release hardly any information at all in Eli's case. And then you take that a step further and his family, keep in mind, they're all in Wisconsin when Eli is murdered. So they've not been extremely forthcoming with details about Eli's life. They don't know 100% how much those details about his life could in fact provide answers or clues to who may have killed him. And again, they are states away all the way up in Wisconsin this takes place down in Florida. I will say this. It looks to me 
like his family has concerns about the investigation into Eli's death. And it sounds like where they have asked the Putnam County Sheriff's Office for answers, they don't seem to be getting any answers. Now, that could simply be that the Sheriff's Office itself may not have much in the way of answers to provide to the family in this investigation. Well, and to be clear, I don't think his family had a great deal of knowledge or details about Eli's life when he was in Florida. We'll try to fill in some of the blanks about his life as we go through what information we do know about Eli's case. So the time in question here is roughly about 10 p.m. January 30th to 7.30 a.m. January 31st, 2019. So that's Wednesday night going into Thursday morning. One odd fact here, Captain, is that Eli, we don't know when he was murdered. It's sometime in that window, but his birthday is January 31st, something that we have not encountered very often here in reviewing hundreds of unsolved homicide cases. Again, the time in question is 10 p.m., January 30th to roughly 7.30 a.m. January 31st, 2019, Wednesday night going into Thursday morning. His 15-year-old son finds him dead in his bedroom. A 911 call is placed and made at that time where his son requests an ambulance. Yeah, so like we said, his son is staying at a condo that's on the ground floor. So what would happen is he has school that week, so his father would come down, wake him up, and take him to school. Well, that morning, what his son claims is, my dad never came down to wake me up, so I went up to see what was going on, and when he walked into the apartment, it's a one-bedroom apartment, he sees that his father has been shot, and there's multiple shots. There's There's multiple bullet holes in the walls, and so he ends up calling 911. There is evidence that a lot of gunfire took place in Eli's bedroom sometime in the middle of the night. A couple of things that are strange here. One, we talked about the rumor mill that Eli Washtock was in fear for his safety and potentially his son's safety. And that is why arrangements were made to rent this other condo. Why would Eli Washtock be afraid for his safety? Well, that's because he was looking into the Michelle O'Connell suspicious death investigation and it sounds like he was shaking some trees some things were falling out he might have been finding some breadcrumbs in that case and ruffled some feathers along the way now whose feathers may have been ruffled obviously would be jeremy banks the individual that has been suspected by many as the trigger person in michelle o'connell's death There's a few weird things in the jeremy banks slash eli wash talk world. One is that there was statements by Eli that Jeremy Banks, who is a St. John's County Sheriff's deputy, had run him off the road at some point. I say that that's weird, not because of Jeremy Banks's personality. We can gather from events in Jeremy Banks's life that he's a hothead, that he He springs into action before thinking things through. He's had a record of that. So hearing that Eli Washtock was run off the road by Jeremy Banks did not come as a surprise. What came as a surprise 
is to then hear from other people saying that, no, that is not the case. There was some kind of encounter between the two, but that Jeremy Banks did not run Eli Washtalk off of the road. So what we know about Eli Washtalk's involvement or wanting to solve this case is obviously he's a local. He hears about the information that is being released to the public. It's ruled a suicide. Then there's other people that believe that it was a homicide. So Eli starts looking into this, collecting notes and and basically starting a whole binder and reaching out to lawyers and reaching out to other people that could run tests for Eli to maybe prove his hypothesis that Jeremy Banks is responsible for Michelle's murder. These two cases are very different as far as law enforcement and how they will view these two cases. So with Michelle's case being ruled a suicide, that means it's somewhat of an open door, open book policy when it comes to getting information and getting reports in Michelle's case. In Eli's case, they ruled this a homicide. Keep in mind, it took them about four months to make that determination, but they ruled Eli's case a homicide and therefore it's looked at much differently where those records are not available to the public. It's not an open door, open book policy. Now in the Michelle O'Connell case, I don't know exactly when the exact date or week that Eli got involved in this case, but his involvement was significant. He was in communication with Michelle's mother and family And he had told them that with their permission, he would like to look into the suspicious death of Michelle O'Connell. And like I said, from what I could see, Captain, he was shaking some trees and some things were falling out. He was finding things that could be potential clues into what really happened that night in Michelle O'Connell and Jeremy Banks' residence. Well, a couple of things that are strange is, one, Eli didn't have a clear motive other than just wanting to solve this case. He seemed to take a personal interest in this case, but nobody really knows exactly what the motive was. It wasn't like he had plans to make a documentary or make a podcast or anything about the case. And he wasn't telling people back home anything about this investigation or, or his involvement in it. After Eli's murder, his family was, that was news to them that he was investigating this Michelle O'Connell case. Now, one thing, we do have one of his friends who is on record, a lifetime friend that says, Eli, his personality was, if he saw somebody getting picked on or bullied, he would go and stand up for them. He did this at a young age. He did it all of his life. And this friend suspects that maybe that's what Eli thought was going on here. He saw the death of this young woman, single mother, Michelle O'Connell, and he didn't feel that her family or the case was getting any kind of justice or getting a real true investigation. And so he decided to seek the family's permission to step in, get involved, and maybe potentially right a wrong that he thought was going on. Well, like you said, we don't have a clear timeline of the murder, but we also don't have a clear timeline of what what he was up to that year. We don't know. We don't know if Wash Talk was working for the first six months of that year or what kind of job he had. 
As far as his son was concerned, he had no job, but I guess he was receiving some money from his mother and his father. Yeah, this is a weird part, but I also think that this is interesting when looking into his murder. So Eli was killed with his own gun in his bedroom in the middle of the night. And as the captain pointed out, there was plenty of evidence in that bedroom to suggest that multiple shots had been fired. The police have never released to the public exactly how he was killed other than to say that it was a gunshot. They don't say how many times he was shot or where he was shot. So we don't even know those details, but based off of what the family has stated. And again, we know his son was in that room because his son found him and reported it to nine one one that there were multiple shots fired. And people have said that have seen the, room itself have stated that it almost looked like somebody was just kind of firing around the room, firing this gun around the room, that it was into several different walls, into the ceiling, through a lamp. One of his relatives even stated that they believed there were so many shots fired that the gun may have been reloaded at some point. When I hear that we have gunshots all over the place, Captain, the first thing that my mind goes to is we probably have some kind of struggle. Right. Maybe Eli and whoever went there to kill him. Yeah, a little tussle, a little wrestle in our underbrews. Were fighting over the gun, and the gun was going off and fired into these different walls, into the ceiling, into the lamp. Right. Because you've said it a hundred times here in the garage, Captain. You don't want to be the guy that brings a knife to a gunfight. No, sir. Well, Eli Washtock, he had a nine millimeter gun. He knew how to use it. He kept it in his nightstand in his bedroom. Did somebody come in there with the intention of shutting this guy up and shutting him down with a knife attempting to do it quietly in the middle of the night only to discover a man who was there ready to defend himself with a gun and now we have a fight, a fight and a struggle for that gun and whoever gets that gun is going to be the winner. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. All right, we are back two weeks in a row. We're a case 
delivers some details, but that just leads me to more questions. Exactly. And don't forget, everyone out there, we still have some tickets left for the April 29th BrewDog live event. Go to truecrimegarage.com. Go to the store page, and you can find more information about tickets or purchase your tickets there. So when you find out that Eli was killed with his own gun, you start going, well, how's this possible? But like you said, oh, a guy comes in, there's a struggle, some shots go off. That would make sense why we have bullet holes all over the apartment. And then that also makes sense on why he would have been killed by his own gun. Yeah, because the other option then becomes, well, somebody must have known where the gun was, went into his condo with the intention of retrieving that gun and then shot and killed Eli Washtock. That seems to me a lot less likely than somebody showing up and being surprised that they have to fight off the homeowner that has a gun. But we don't know if Eli was shot one time or multiple times, but we know because of the bullet holes and we have a dead victim here that there was multiple gunshots. The problem is we have no ear witnesses. This is not just a single family home in a, in a neighborhood. This is a condo complex. These are condos on top of condos beside condos. So you would think with all these multiple shots happening that we'd have at least somebody reporting this or calling 911 and saying that they heard shots fired. There are two really good sources that I found in this case, and I was surprised how few good sources we had to at our disposal in this case. Well, not just good sources, but there's just few sources in general. Exactly. So you have the sheriff's office who has not released hardly any information at all in Washtock's murder case. And then you have his family who, again, live many miles away. And it sounds like they're not getting the answers that they want from the sheriff's office. And therefore, they have little to add. The two sources that we found that were the best for this case was the criminal conduct podcast season one back from 2020 they did a deep dive on the michelle o'connell case and devoted a couple of episodes to the eli wash talk portion of that story which you cannot i think it would be irresponsible to talk about one and not the other that is in large part because of the suspicions surrounding both of these cases could they be connected there are a lot of people that believe that yes they have to be The other good source was CBS 47 Action News Jax uh, that did a great article. Now, they did this article just days after Eli was killed, and the title of this article is Michelle O'Connell, Seven Things to Know About Suspicious Death of Person Looking into Case. So they noted seven different things that they found interesting that they were able to report on in some form. Again, some of it included some speculation. So following their good lead here, Captain, I thought I would write down seven interesting things about the Eli Washtock case. First off was IDing the victim. Now, we know that his son calls in to 911 roughly at 7:30 a.m. that morning saying that he found his father dead that his father had been shot the son sounds incredibly calm on 911 again we don't know it's it it's difficult to say what that means he's almost uncomfortably calm to me in the portions that I've heard 
This 911 call has not been released by the sheriff's office. However, I bring that up in all fairness, right? Because we reviewed the 911 call from Michelle's case regarding Jeremy Banks calling in emergency services. And we put in our own opinions about his actions and his statements and and how he conducted himself on that call. So I think it's only fair to do so in the Eli case as well. But one problem became IDing the victim. This was very interesting to me for a couple reasons, because we do not know exactly what that means. Okay, so Eli Washtock had changed his name at some point. He was born Craig Washtock and then legally changed his name to Ellie Marie Washtock. Now, that gets a little bit complicated here, Captain, because some have said that Eli identified as a woman. Some say that he identified as a man and a woman. Some say he identified as a non-binary sexual preference. And some say that this has overshadowed the investigation of his murder. Yeah, and we keep on saying Eli and saying he, but this is out of respect for his friends and family because this is how they identify him. And this is also how his son identified him as well. Yes, as said, Washtock's death has been ruled a homicide. The autopsy report has not been released to the public. Despite the homicide ruling, police quickly stated that they were confident that there was no danger to the community, which we'll get into that here in a second. But the police also quickly released a statement that Washtock identified as both a man and a woman. And again, some have said that that has overshadowed the case. We certainly want to be very respectful to Eli. What we do know is he identified himself as Eli. So short for Ellie Marie, I'm guessing. We do know from a statement from his family that he changed his name and then regretted that at some point. And as the captain said, according to his family and according to his neighbors, he identified as Eli and as a man. In a perfect world, Eli would be sitting right here next to us and would tell us how Eli prefers to be identified. Well, and like you said, the the sheriff hasn't made a lot of comments about this case, but he has made some, I think, questionable comments when it comes to Eli, you know, basically viewing him as some kind of uh, transgender freak and being very dismissive of Eli as a person. And at the end of the day, whatever Eli identified as, Maybe none of our business, but he's a human and we should treat him as such and we should treat him with some dignity and respect, which I just don't think law enforcement did in this case. Yeah, there's one statement where I believe the sheriff from now, in all fairness, this is the sheriff from St. John's County, not Putnam County. St. John's County brought in Putnam County to do the investigation and rightfully so. Now, they did this because they were made aware that Eli was looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell, and they should have brought in another agency to investigate her death right from Jump Street, but they never did. They, they waited months and months and only begrudgingly brought in FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, to conduct an investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death. And when they didn't like what FDLE found, they pushed them out the door. So in this case, they bring in Putnam County Sheriff's Office, which 
again, I'm glad that they did. It's rightful that they did so. Keep in mind, though, St. John's Sheriff's Office was on the scene. They're the ones that are going to respond to the 911 call. They are there on the scene for hours before it's determined that they should bring in Putnam County to conduct this investigation. Now, I said that IDing the victim was complicated, and it was. It wasn't until five or six days later that they they identified the victim here as Eli Washtalk. What's interesting to me there is, does that tell us something about the crime scene itself? Does that tell us something about the injuries to our victim? We know that they needed to do dental comparisons to determine that it was Eli Washtalk. The problem here, though, and what is weird, is we have the son who's calling it in, calling it into 911. It's his father who's found in his residence. Was this a situation where they needed dental records to identify Eli based on injuries that he suffered that led to his death? Or was this the complications that he had changed his name and then was going by an alias at the time of his death? It could be both. And I've seen it suggested, and there are are things at the crime scene that suggest maybe this was a headshot that killed Eli. And that would make sense that we need to go the route of dental records to identify him. Well, let's dive more into the crime scene. This is very interesting here, Captain, and you pointed this out, and I'm glad that you brought this up earlier. So what's so strange to me is that no one heard a thing. No one seems to have heard anything. We already talked about the amount of gunfire that took place in that room and so much gunfire that it was speculated by one of Eli's family members that the gun may have had to have been reloaded at some point and continued firing. Now, this condo complex, this is a a gated community. So you need to check in with a guard at the gate to get into this community. Right. There presents some ways of excluding potential suspects and including potential suspects. Somebody had to have the ability to not only get into Eli's condo, but also get into that community. So was this a stranger? Was this a rogue deputy that that was tired of being investigated and decided to come in to that community? Or was it somebody that was already there? Yeah. So basically to get into this complex, you're going to be ID'd and they're going to take the, your information down for your license plate. It's either somebody that lives there or somebody that checked themselves in, or is there another possibility that somebody got through security without having to be checked? Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like this is impenetrable security measures that were installed here. It looks to me like somebody, if they were stealth enough, could figure out a way into the community. The first thing I was looking for was if somebody could take a waterway and use it as essentially a back door into the community, because we've seen this in other homicide cases, ones that are still unsolved to this day, that they go, how could this happen in a gated community? Nobody could get in, but people do get in. Delivery drivers get in. And if you have those waterways, you can avoid security completely and get in there using watercraft instead. This, from everything I could see and find online, does not appear to be a possibility in Eli's case. 
What is interesting, though, is the Criminal Conduct podcast reported that a law officer would not be required to check in to the gate, would not be required to show ID or really even identify themselves that they could pull up and would be likely be granted full access to go straight into the community. Again, we do not know what they found in their investigation because so little has been released. What we do know is the statement that no one heard a thing. That was the original statement that came out. No one heard a thing. Later, the statement then changed to no one heard any gunshots. Somebody, one neighbor believes they may have heard some kind of scuffle or argument, but we do not know if it's related to the shooting itself. Now, this is incredibly curious because of one, the amount of gunfire and two, given the living situation, Eli's living in a single bedroom condo. His son was sleeping on a pullout couch in the living room. At the time of his death, his son is staying in a condo a couple floors down. According to at least one neighbor, this was due to safety precautions which doesn't make a lot of sense to me no it doesn't let's get into that in just one second but i want to make sure that i include here that in this condo the the latera condos where eli lived there's 149 units spread out over the course of three buildings so there's potentially 50 units in eli's building and no one hears a thing with that amount of gunfire which also again like Anytime there's an apartment complex or a condo complex, then you get a, a, a very long list of possible suspects and people that you have to question. And what the captain was getting to there is that the fact that we have Eli's son living in a different condo or, or staying in a different condo would be the more appropriate way to word it, because it sounds like this was a temporary solution if a solution was even needed. But this could be a, a, just been for a week. It was not cheap to do this, is my understanding. But several people have pointed out that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you are afraid for your situation and afraid for your son's safety or your own safety, you are a responsible gun owner. Why not have your son stay with you rather than staying overnight by himself? a few floors away. It would seem to me like it, he would be safer to stay with you where you're sleeping in the master bedroom with a gun loaded and ready in the nightstand. Yeah. And like I've said, there's also speculation that maybe the son was staying there because they were having difficulties. But when people bring up the fact that, well, this, this rental would have cost him about sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars just for the week. Money really isn't that big of a deal when you're living off of other people's incomes. From everything we know, Eli didn't have a job at the time, and he was asking his father and mother for money. So when you're basically living off their their money, then what does it matter that you spend sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars It's not your money anyways. Well, and what's unique about that situation is Eli's parents were separated. So they have stated he could ask his dad for money and get money from his father without his mother knowing, and then go to mom and ask for more money without 
his father knowing. And the amount of money that they were sending him is reported to be substantial. It's it's a significant amount of money. However, I want to point out something here, too, in this case. When we talk about things like a motive, well, really, on the surface, all I can see, Captain, is three potential motives. One, him investigating Michelle O'Connell's case. Somebody didn't like that. Maybe it was the deputy that we've talked so much about the last two weeks. Or was it money? Because he was spending a lot of money. He was asking for a lot of money. And he was spending a lot of money on the Michelle O'Connell investigation. He was filing for reports and for crime scene photos or photos from the scene. He was paying experts for their opinions and for them to review things that he thought was of evidentiary value. And people have suggested they don't know exactly 100% how he was covering his bills, his living expenses, the living expenses of his son, and paying for this investigation without having a job. Where was all that money coming from? We've talked about his mom and dad, but could there have been someplace else? Could there have been some other kind of stream of income, some kind of other stream of money that we are not privy to, that he was getting money from somebody else? Because if he was and he was not paying that person back, that could be the motive that we should be honing in on. Well, and just to be clear, we don't know how much Eli was actually spending on this research. All we have is he had this notebook, supposedly, that was either taken by the murderer or was taken by police. But we don't have, again, the police coming forward and saying that they found this notebook But supposedly he had this notebook and he had copies of the notebook in a safety deposit box. So just because we have these notes and these experts that he had contact information from and maybe even notes that he contacted them, we don't know which ones he actually hired and how much they charged if they charged anything. Because, you know, sometimes when you're looking into a case and you present the case to somebody, they might do the research and, and, and do some work on the case just pro bono. So we have no clue what he was spending on this. But his son makes it pretty clear that he, one, didn't think he was staying in the condo because his father was afraid for his safety or that his father was afraid for his own safety. He also says that there was just nobody else in my father's life. It was just me and him, and that was it. And he didn't have a job. So other than this case, it's like, what the heck was this guy doing? Yeah, and the thing about the safety, again, and I'll move past this here, Captain, but forgive me. Let me get one more shot at it. It's if you're concerned for your son's safety, moving him to another condo, that suggests to me that you are concerned about your safety or your son's safety, and that would be coming from the threat would be you or your son, that they weren't getting along. Maybe it had erupted into violence. That we don't know. We're not saying that that's happened, but that's the only thing that registers that seems to make any sense to me. It also does make sense something you said earlier. Maybe they were going to move into this condo eventually. That seems like something that could be, but that's very... Often not reported that way. So I wonder if that 
how how likely that could have been. We know that Eli's condo was a one bedroom unit. I don't know if this other unit was multi bedrooms because that would make some sense. Okay, well, well, we're having some difficulty, but I'm just going to have my son stay here, and we're going to eventually move into that unit anyways because it's a two bedroom and. He'll have his own bedroom, and that will be better for everybody. But again, how are you going to be upgrading to a condo when you're not even paying for, you're not even paying the rent of that condo? His investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death was bearing fruit, because we know that we don't know when he stepped into the investigation, but we know that in August, so roughly six months before Eli was killed, he had filed a request for photos from the scene of where Michelle O'Connell died. And that request was granted. And he received those photos. And Eli, really working this case very hard, which you heard our coverage, we don't think St. John's Sheriff's Office worked the case very hard at all. One thing he did was he was able to identify a shirt in one of those photos that had transfer blood evidence on the shirt. This is very interesting because one of the expenses that he had, that Eli had, was providing this information to a blood expert to get their opinion on how Michelle O'Connell's blood ended up on that shirt, where when it's seen in a picture from the crime scene, it's seen in a location that would... that that It's not easily explained why there would be transfer blood on that shirt yeah it's basically impossible to get blood on that shirt in the location that it is in during the photos one of the other parts of his investigation that he was working on was the water usage records for jeremy banks's house on the night of michelle's death and this is really interesting because remember we had one of the officers that said when they showed up and confronted jeremy banks they believed that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't sweating. He appeared to be very clean and even smelled like soap. So some have wondered, did he take a shower between the time that Michelle was killed and calling 911? And Eli knew that one of the biggest water usages a single family dwelling will have in the course of a day is somebody taking a shower. And so he wanted to get the water usage for that day, the day in question in Michelle O'Connell's death. Yeah. And I don't know how much you could actually prove like when the water usage happened. So I think it'd be easily explained away like, well, I took a shower in the morning or, or whenever, but, um, but I think it shows it shows his creativity when looking into this investigation. Yes, Captain. And the the report, the thing that, that is huge here and potentially links the O'Connell case to Eli's case is that blood evidence. This was information that Eli Washtock had told others he considered this to be bombshell level type information. And he commissioned a report by a bloodstain pattern analyst. We'd already mentioned this, but her name is Anna Cox. Eli Washtock hired her to review the evidence in the crime scene photos that he had obtained in August, six months before 
his murder. Cox spoke with the criminal conduct guys on their podcast and told them that the bombshell evidence was a shirt that we have already discussed that was found in the photos. It was lying on a day bed just above Michelle's head. It had a saturation blood stain on it about the size of a coaster. Michelle was lying on the floor below a blanket on the daybed. The shirt was not at all in contact with Michelle's body and would not have gotten blood on it based on where the shirt was found. So it must have come into contact with a wound, possibly the cut on her lip, perhaps her head, and then was moved. The shirt was not collected by the original investigators. Anna Cox also found a spot of blood on the gun's tack light. The spot is visible in the photos of the weapon. Now, remember Rusty Rogers, who took over the O'Connell investigation for FDLE, his lab report found no blood on the gun, but Anna Cox observed this blood on the tack light, but not on the barrel or the side of the gun. So then this led her to conclude that that blood was likely a transfer stain from someone handling the gun after it was fired. Think about that. After it was fired in Michelle's death. Right. That would suggest that Michelle either didn't pull the trigger and somebody else did, or if she did, somebody handled the gun before it was photographed in those pictures. Well, and one of the interviews with jeremy banks he basically admits that he moved the gun after she was killed or somebody moved the gun after she was killed because it shouldn't have been found in the location that it was let's go back to the condo appearance in eli Washtock's case the door there's a big question mark about the front door to his condo so it was early in the early reports stated that the door may have been broken into, but then there's other reports that state that there was no sign of forced entry into Eli Washtock's condominium. And then it was reported that, well, the door had to be replaced. So reporters reached out to the Putnam County Sheriff's office and said, the door has been removed and has been replaced. Why? We've seen in other cases where a door, a front door is removed from a crime scene because they're going to take it to test it for ballistics. You know, if somebody used a gun to force their way in, right? if somebody used some kind of weapon or pry tool to gain access through that door, they'll remove the door and take it to their crime lab. They also will do this for fingerprint purposes. So the reporters did their due diligence. They asked the sheriff's office, was this door removed for any of those reasons? It wasn't removed to try to find some evidence in the wash talk murder case. The answer, no comment. We can't comment on that because this is an open murder investigation. Right. But the evidence that we do have is that his son calls 911. He is the one that goes into the apartment. He claims that he used his key to get into the apartment And so when he leaves the apartment, he locked the door behind him. So police had to bust down the door where paramedics, somebody had to bust down that door when responding to the call. Right. Which again would require uh, them to replace the door. Yeah. Which would make everything make sense. But also why wouldn't you just ask the kid, 
could you let us into the apartment? You know, I, I, I don't see the need for busting down the door when you have his son that called and obviously he got into the apartment. So there's just, there's just little weird inconsistencies. There's things that seem very simple in this case that could be done that I'm guessing were not done in this investigation. So, well, and I'm going to stop you there because I agree, but just because we're not being told this information by law enforcement doesn't mean that they don't have this information. And just because they gave no comment about the situation with the door doesn't mean there's, they're being uh, shady or nefarious uh, about their answers. The crime scene evidence is pretty basic. That's what's been released and it's pretty simple and it's multiple shots fired potential that he was shot in the head and at a low trajectory, meaning he could have been on the floor or on his knees or sitting up when the fatal shot was fired. Right. We don't know how many shots were fired in that room. We don't know how many gunshots our victim took. We do know that there was money missing from the condo, and this money was in a bowl or a jar and hidden in a cabinet in the kitchen. It's described as such that somebody would have to know that that money is there to have taken that money. Now, I ask you, does this mean that we should be looking more in the direction of a motive for money? Or is this a situation where maybe someone staged the scene to take the money simply to make it look like it has something to do with Eli's homicide? Yeah, this money thing, I kind of feel is a nothing burger because when somebody is living off of other people's incomes and he has no income that we know of, that it's very possible that he used this money himself and his son just never knew that he used that his father used this money and that the money was gone. Like we said, he, there was multiple days that he wasn't staying at that condo unit. So is it possible that his father took that money for some reason? And where was he staying when he wasn't staying there? The other thing too, he could be cashing checks for mom and or dad And rather than putting it in the bank and rather than carrying around a large sum of money and cash, he may be stashing it in this jar or bowl in the kitchen area, hidden away. So the money thing doesn't really offer up anything strong that's suggestive anyway. There was a footprint, a partial footprint that was found near Eli's body in that bedroom. Now, it's been reported that that footprint is such that it's more of a smudge when we talk about fingerprints and more of a smudge this appears to be a smudge type print where they're not able to determine the size of the shoe of the person that left the print or what type of shoe that person was wearing a couple possibilities it could be a first responders footprint smudge that they left at the scene it could be eli's son's foot we do know that he found eli we do know that based off of that 911 call, Eli is found on the floor in uh, a large pool of blood around his head. Yeah. And so it could be just as simple as either the killer left that print there 
the footprint there, his son did, or one of the first responders did? Now, I know it seems unlikely, but the fact that Eli is killed with his own gun and makes you wonder if it's possible that this is a suicide where Michelle's case is ruled a suicide, but most likely a homicide. Is it possible that this is a suicide that was ruled a homicide? Yeah, and that's one thing that's hard to shake too, Captain, because based off of what his family has stated, they said that a lot of the line of questioning in the investigation seemed to be focused around, and the words they were using, the questions they were asking the family, seemed to point that the investigators may may have thought that this could be a suicide. Well, think about it, though. And it, it took four months for them to make the determination to to officially rule it a homicide. Well, and think about it. It makes some sense because, one, we know he has money issues. We know he doesn't have a job. We know that he is having some issues with his son and his son's behavior. But then also it would make a lot of sense of why I'm going to rent a place to have my son stay there. Because now that's for my son's protection only. And the protection is from me because I believe I'm going to harm myself. And then also a lot of suicides happen around anniversaries or dates that are of importance. And like you said, this would have happened on his birthday. Mm -hmm. So, and then we also know, and sadly it's just a horrible statistic that in the trans community, there is a very high rate of suicide. What doesn't make sense with suicide is all the other bullet holes. Right. Right. And that's where, look, let's dive into the world of fiction for a little bit here and and make believe, right? Like we would on Mr. Rogers show. But you sit here and you have to wonder, did he become so obsessed with this case? Did he fly off the rails? Did at, at some point, did he think, you know what? If I do take my own life for whatever reason at all, whatever reason that may be, right? do I make it a confusing suicide? Do I make it mere Michelle O'Connell's death in some way? Well, and let's stay on this point for a second, because when you say that Eli told people that Jeremy Banks, the boyfriend of Michelle O'Connell, people suspect him of killing her. When he states to her family and to other individuals that Jeremy Banks ran me off the road in his cruiser, everybody believes him. But the thing that he tells them is, well, not only did he run me off the road, but my son was in the car. Well, when his son is questioned about this, he says, no, that never happened. Right. But. There's some evidence, and I I don't know exactly what it is, but I've heard from people that there are some, there's some evidence out there that he did have some kind of encounter, encounter. But now is that Eli confronting Jeremy Banks? And you can't put that on Jeremy Banks. If this guy that's investigating this uh, suspicious death, if he comes knocking on your door and, and there's a weird encounter. And you have Eli's father who said something really interesting. He says he didn't 
he didn't believe the idea that Eli thought he was in some kind of trouble, that there was some kind of threat to Eli or to Eli's son, because he said, if, if my son was scared, he would have grabbed his son, hopped in the car and drove North. Right. They would have got out of Florida. They had places to go in, in Wisconsin. They had family there that wanted them there. Wanted a relationship with Eli so much that they were willing to send their son large sums of money to help him just about the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, there's issues I have with if you bring up that this was a suicide. One, because of the random bullet holes in the apartment. But also, if you really wanted to protect your son and you knew you are going to kill yourself, why not send your son up north? But, again, if I'm law enforcement, and again, I don't know if they did this or not, but Eli's son was having some issues. Is it possible the struggle was with Eli's son, and they could have done some simple tests to figure out if the son fired a gun that day? And I don't know if they did that, but they should do that. Not only... Because not only because the case deserves that, but the son deserves that too. It's it's like I said in the Michelle O'Connell case. There's things that they misstepped in the investigation that they should have done to rule Jeremy in or out. And because they didn't do those things, you leave those questions on the table. So I don't, I'm not trying to point the finger at his son to be disrespectful. I'm actually pointing the finger at his son to be respectful. And to question the investigation. Exactly. The But as you pointed out, I'll remind you what you pointed out earlier, just because we don't have the proof that those tests were conducted doesn't mean that they weren't conducted and does not mean that they do not know the results of those tests. I sit here and I share the same belief captain that I don't think those tests were conducted. I don't think that they looked for trace DNA or touch DNA on the gun itself. I'm sitting here scratching my head. I would love to know where in that bedroom in relation to Eli's body was the gun found. Where did they find that gun? Was it in another corner? Was it up? close and right next to his body yeah and the sad the sad reality is that i believe and again i could be completely wrong but i believe that we live in a pretty sad world where some people come in and go well here's a, a guy that changed his name that identified as a man and a woman and they just don't care as much and they just don't view that individual with the same dignity or respect that they would somebody else. Yeah. The, the, for the St. John's sheriff to refer to Eli Washtock as a, I think a nutcase or a nut job is, is the word that he chose to use. Right. I find that infuriating. We did as much as we could to look into Eli's life. Now I'm going to be 100% honest his life is confusing. His life and some of the actions don't make sense. And again, we're sitting here trying to review this 
many miles away years later, and we're left with a lot of questions about Eli's life. But I didn't see anything to suggest that he's a nutcase or a nut job as the sheriff chose to word it. What I see here, and I hate to have to be the one to remind the sheriff of this, first and foremost, this is a citizen that was killed in your county on your watch. So show a little bit of concern and a little bit of respect for that citizen of your county. And let's just address the elephant in the room here, Captain. Where was Jeremy Banks on the night that Eli Washtock was murdered? Right. Well, it's been stated publicly and in the news that Jeremy Banks was in training during the time that Eli Washtock was killed. There's going to be some pushback here because training typically would take place during the daytime. It does make some sense because this murder occurred in the middle of the week, but Eli Washtock most certainly was not killed during the daytime. He was killed between 10 p.m. after his son his son says, the last time I saw my father was 10 p.m. the night before. Then at 7.30, I go to his condo because he didn't come to wake me up to go to school. And that's when I found him. So if we are to believe everything that his son says, they went to Burger King to get some dinner that night. He last sees his father at 10, finds him at 7.30. There's our window. There's our window of nine and a half hours. And during that time frame... Eli Washtock was killed. Yeah, and so if you want to make a statement that you have an alibi, make a statement that actually makes sense. Again, with everything in this case, unfortunately, it's vague. Every piece of information that comes out, most of it anyway, is simply vague and unclear information. Yes, Jeremy Banks could have been in training. What I can tell you is he was not actively training during the time of Eli's murder. However, I can say that based off of what I know about the state of Indiana, state of Ohio, and the state of Kentucky, in those three states, it's not uncommon for a person working in law enforcement, be it for the state or the county, they have reoccurring training all the time, and it is not uncommon for them to have to go out of town for that reoccurring training. So a little more detail is needed in this situation. If this is a good alibi, well, where was he exactly during this time? Well, again, I think there's just so many different avenues that could be looked into. And there's some statements that they might know who killed Eli. They just don't have enough evidence to prosecute that individual. Or believe that they know who killed Right. This case reminds me a whole lot of the Steven Spina case that we covered a couple months ago. We got a single father living on the third floor, attacked and killed in his residence. Yeah. Nobody hears a thing. Killed with a weapon that came from within the home. Right. And 
Look, I know that in the Steven Spina case, I know 100% those detectives worked that case very hard. I can say that. I can't say that in Eli's case. But one thing that I was upfront about when speaking with the detectives in the Spina case was we don't like when there is information that could be helpful to the public for crowdsourcing some information that could lead you to your suspect. And in the Spina case, they likely held back some information too long that they were able to come up off of years later and hope that it would help the investigation once it went cold. I believe that there's information in Eli's case that they've held back that they could present to the public and ask them to crowdsource this information that could lead them to their suspect or further bolster their investigation and evidence surrounding the person that they quote believe did it. But don't hold on to that information forever because this case is just from 2019. And here we sit in 2023 and the case is cold. It is frigid cold. If you have anything, now is the time to present it to the public when you can still get some information. I, and I know a lot of people out there are big believers in transfer theory. They're very likely in the Spina case and in the Eli Washtock case and so many other unsolved homicides out there, transfer theory needs to be used and needs to be investigated. Simply put, transfer theory is the idea that the killer either knowingly or unknowingly left something at the crime scene and or took something from the crime scene knowingly or unknowingly with them. And that piece of information is how you connect victim to perpetrator, perpetrator to crime scene, evidence to perpetrator. And that's how you get a conviction. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage onward and upwards. Do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? This week, Captain, we have another good one. We are recommending a book called Urges, a chronicle of serial killer Larry Hall. This is by Christopher Holly Martin. And you know what? We talked about Larry Hall quite a bit in our Denise Flum episodes just a few weeks ago. So if you want to learn more about the man that was the inspiration for the Apple TV hit Blackbird, check out this book called Urges. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you. Questions like, how was this mild-mannered janitor able to kill with impunity for years? And what psychopathy drove Larry Hall to sadistic sexual murder? Check out Urges, a chronicle of serial killer Larry Hall by Christopher Holly Martin. You can find that title and many others on our website on our recommended page, truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. <laughs>